If you've got a Bible, turn to, why is my, there we go, not working. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're in this series about the people standing around the cross or journeying towards the cross with Jesus during those last days of his life. And today, I want to read from Matthew 27, from verse 45. Listen now for the word of God. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. They filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And then this, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. We'll stop there. Surely this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in churches, all around Belfast, all around Ireland, all around the world, your word is being opened this morning. You are moving and you are speaking by your spirit to the hearts and minds and bodies of your people, to the communities who gather as your church. And we pray this morning, God, come in power and love and mercy and do a work in us and amongst us. And we take this prayer and we pray it over the churches we know and the preachers we know. And we pray it especially for our brothers and sisters in Knock as they continue in their vacancy process journeying towards what we hope and pray will be a new minister for that church family. Grant us ears to listen, not to what I'm going to say, God, but to what you are going to say to your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There we go. Okay, question for you, for the geeks and the movie buffs out there. What was the first film shot in CinemaScope widescreen? Anybody know? Hmm? No, good guess, though. 
Pardon? No. The first film shot in CinemaScope widescreen was in 1953. I wasn't born then. Some of you were. Um, it was called The Robe. Have any of you seen it? No? Anybody under 40 seen it? You need to watch it. It's a cracking film. It's a brilliant film, so it is. Stars, uh, stars Richard Burton and Gene Simmons. And amongst the story, it tells the story we've just been reading about, about the centurion and the soldiers at the foot of the cross who were charged with overseeing Jesus' execution. And the part in the story where they gamble to see who gets the robe that Jesus was wearing. And the impact on the lives, particularly of one of those people or a couple of those people. From standing at the foot of the cross. I think it's cool that that is the first film that Hollywood shot in CinemaScope widescreen. Telling the story or a fictional element of the true story of Jesus' execution on the cross. It's, it's one of the most remarkable scenes in human history. It's recorded or in different little angles. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels and talked about right throughout the New Testament. We've, we've read it today in Matthew's Gospel. You can also read it in Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I'd encourage you to do that at some point in your journey towards Easter. I, I want to start by picking out a few of the the kind of interesting, intriguing details of this story because as you read through it, there's a lot that just kind of washes over us. Some of it you've heard before. Some of it will just be lost on you unless you pause and think about it. The first thing I want to just pick out is Jesus' cry on the cross or one of the seven things that Jesus says on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. In fact, Psalm 22 details the story of the death of Jesus. But I find it incredible that in that moment on the cross where he has been abandoned, tortured, whipped, spat on, insulted, in that moment on the cross when his body is in physical agony, but worse than that, he is starting to experience the weight of every sin, every shame, every brokenness, every pain laid upon him. The pain in his body is nothing compared to what was going on in his soul, in his spirit. In that moment, he uses scripture and he uses the Psalms to express the depth of his feeling and the depth of his prayer. Have you ever been in such agony that you can't put words around what you're saying and you turn to the book of Psalms and it's as if that Psalm was written just for you in that moment? Jesus prays scripture to his Father in heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and the people around the cross, some of them said, he's calling Elijah. There's probably two reasons. It's a strange thing to say. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. There's a couple of reasons they would have said that. There was a colloquial belief in Judaism around that time that a righteous Jew, a righteous person, if they called out to Elijah, he would rescue them from their pain and suffering. They hadn't seen it happen. They just had this colloquial belief that that's what would happen, almost a superstition, if you like. 
and they're saying, well, he's supposed to be righteous, and he's just cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. They've misheard what he said, and they thought Eli was short for Elijah. They thought this Jewish guy is crying out to Elijah to rescue him. Let's see if he's righteous enough for it to happen. Of course, that's not what Jesus was doing. It's not what Elijah does or did. As you read on through the story, we come to the detail about the curtain in the temple. A lot of you will know this, but in case any of you don't, um, the, the, there was a couple of curtains going into the temple. There was the curtain that separated um, the outside courtyard for the Gentiles from the, the inside space for the Jews. But then there was another curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. And this is the curtain we're talking about. The Holy of Holies was the place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where where Jewish belief was that God's presence literally dwelt. This was, this was the touch point between heaven and earth, and it was separated by this curtain. The curtain was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and was woven together to be a hand breadth thick. This is not a cheap set of curtains you've picked up from Donnell. This is a substantial piece of kit. And in the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple was ripped in half, not from bottom to top. It wasn't that it was plucked at the bottom. This thing's 60 feet tall. It wasn't plucked at the bottom and it just started to run. It ripped from the top down. God had done something unique where he had torn open this dividing wall between his presence and the people. And the symbolism of this literal event was that from this moment on, you didn't have to encounter God through a system of sacrifices and the intercessory prayers of priests. From this moment on, you as an ordinary person had access to the presence of the living God. We take this for granted, but that's what happened in this moment. The curtain, God tore the temple, tore the barrier between him and his people. We're then told there was an earthquake that split rocks and stones it's funny, we often um, quote from Elijah about the still small voice. God wasn't in the earthquake, the wind or the fire, but he was in the still small voice. Sometimes God is in the whisper and you have to slow down to encounter him. But sometimes God is in the earthquake, in the dramatic event. And in this moment, there was a supernatural event, an earthquake that God was present. Then darkness came over the earth from 12 to 3 p.m. The important detail here that you can miss easily is that it was Passover, and that meant there was a full moon, and that meant there just couldn't physically be a natural eclipse because there was a full moon. This was another supernatural event. Remember, the author of creation is dying on the cross, and in this moment, creation is recognizing the significance of what is happening, and creation itself is grieving. Darkness comes over the city, the hill, where the execution is happening. The earth shakes as Jesus gives up his spirit. And, and then... The final thing I want to point out that's kind of the, the really, you know, there's weird stuff going on. This is really weird. Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that talks about this, about the resurrection of holy people at this time. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told the earthquake shook open some of the tombs, the graves of righteous people, of holy people, 
And at Jesus' resurrection, they came out of their tombs and walked around the city, were seen by many people. I have to be honest, I don't know what you do with that. I, I just don't. There's a question about timing. Did they, did they walk out of the tomb at Jesus' death or did they walk out at Jesus' resurrection? The text isn't completely clear. We don't know. It seems like a fairly significant event. Why does only Matthew's gospel detail it, not Mark, Luke, and John? I, I, I don't know that either. What, what I do know is that earlier, Jesus had stood at the entrance of his friend Lazarus's tomb and called at him to come out of the tomb and he had raised Lazarus from the dead to life. And so we've seen this happen in Jesus' ministry. And in this moment, what we're seeing happening is sin and death defeated forever. This is the most powerful, the most significant, the most physical and supernatural event in human history. And in those moments, unprecedented things happen. And in that moment, God chose to raise some people back to life to testify to the power of God and the truth of what had happened in that moment. If Jesus is who he says he is, if his death really is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, for the sins of people, for the sins of creation, then it is reasonable to expect remarkable events to happen in those moments. It's a text that's so compelling. It's remarkable, isn't it? When you stop and look at it and listen to it, what happens in your head, what happens in your heart, what happens in your emotions, what happens in your spirit, it's absolutely remarkable. And as we read through it, we, we have our eyes just fixated on Jesus. But, but just for a few moments this morning, I want you to step back from that and I, I want you to take a bigger perspective, not just on Jesus on the cross, but I want you to see the Roman soldiers, and particularly this centurion who's at the foot of the cross, who also has his eyes on Jesus on the cross. The Roman centurion who says, truly, this man was the son of God. Is that a confession of faith? Or is he trying to find words to make sense and to find events outside his own experience? Because he's seen the weird things that we're reading about happening. So I want us to take a moment this morning or two to look at some of the story and some of the evidence that this Roman centurion was seeing and then decide for yourself whether you think this confession of faith, truly this man was the son of God, was a genuine confession of faith or simply grasping at words to make sense of events he didn't understand. So four things for the note takers. Four things and a bonus thing. There we go. Four things and a bonus thing. The first one is the story of God. The second one is the judgment of God. The third one is the love of God. The fourth one is the power of God. And the final one is the evidence of a transformed life. So let's start with the story of God. This title, Son of God. Truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus claim and his ministry and who he was and what he was doing and what he had come to achieve hangs on the truth of this statement. It's dead funny because this day and age, most of us in church have no problem grasping the fact that Jesus was God. 
come amongst us. We struggle to identify with his humanity. 2,000 years ago, the, the, the problem was everybody saw him as a physical human being. People struggled to grasp the fact that he was God. Come amongst us, part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Come amongst us in the physical person of Jesus Christ. The very significance of who he was and what he had come to do hung on this being true, the Son of God, part of the Trinity. Jesus had said about it himself in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is very comfortable talking about the Father and Himself as Son. Or if you look in John's Gospel, in John chapter 10, He says, I, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And he goes on to talk about the Father and the Son. At his baptism, doesn't God speak from the heavens? This is my Son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Jesus' life and ministry and purpose is tied up in us grasping the fact that he is the Son of God come amongst us. Part of the Trinity come amongst us. But it's a competing narrative and it's a story that got him killed. Because he wasn't the only person in that age who was claiming the title Son of God. Julius Caesar had claimed the title that he was divine, that he was God himself. And his son, who became Caesar Octavian or Caesar Augustus, claimed the title Son of God. So the Roman emperor at Jesus' birth and for most of his life had claimed the title Son of God for himself. And for somebody else to use it would have been seen as seditious. A power grab on the throne of the world's superpower. Would a Roman centurion have dared utter those words? Risk offending his boss if he hadn't had a sense of conviction? And not only that, the Jewish council who had overseen the illegal trial that we heard about a couple of weeks ago when John Dickinson was preaching, part of their frustration, part of their anger with Jesus was that he was making this claim about himself. Jews were monotheists. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, is the prayer they prayed every morning. And for Jesus to claim to be divine was blasphemous to them. It was the reason for their offense and their anger and their, their bloodlust to see him executed in this moment. This Roman centurion knows his boss's claim, son of God, knows the seditious implications of it, is aware of the trial, the Jewish trial, and the local claims around that, what Jesus had said about himself, and yet he stands at the foot of the cross and says, truly this man is, was the Son of God. He wouldn't have used it lightly. 
So we see the story of God. We, we also, the centurion also witnesses the judgment of God. He, he's overseen the nails go through Jesus' wrist. He's overseen the nails go through his feet. He's overseen the, the cross drop into place and probably dislocate Jesus' shoulders as it falls into the hole in the ground with the weight of it. He's watching this person suffocate to death on the cross in agony. And he hears and he sees the agony of the cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder that he grasped that it was more than the physical agony that Jesus was lamenting in that moment. I wonder that he grasped the, the, the supernatural implications of the weight of sin, the judgment of God falling on Jesus in that moment. So it doesn't have to fall on you and me. I don't know. I don't know. Certainly, though, he witnessed the love of God. We didn't read this in Matthew's gospel, but in other gospels, when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks down at the Roman soldiers who, who have done this to him, and he, he, he prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. This guy's been overseeing executions for years. Has he ever seen somebody in the midst of execution, like he'd be used hearing weeping, begging, anger, insults, cursing? Has he ever heard somebody pray for him? Father, forgive them. Has he ever seen such love, such compassion flowing from, from the one being executed towards the ones overseeing the execution? This Roman centurion is caught up in the story of God and he sees something of the judgment of God. He certainly experiences the love of God. And then he sees the power of God. In the moment when Jesus cried out in a loud voice and gave up his spirit, in the moment when he died on the cross, probably the centurion didn't see the curtain in the temple torn in two. And probably he didn't see the tombs open and the, 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 the righteous people coming out of them and walking around Jerusalem. Probably didn't see those things. Maybe heard about them later, but he didn't see them from his vantage point at the foot of the cross. But he did see darkness come over the land. He did feel the earth shake beneath his feet. He did experience the supernatural power of God in that moment when Jesus, this God-man, gave up his breath, his spirit on the cross. He knew something had happened that was beyond the normal. Those things are all really interesting and all well and good, but, but the evidence for anybody's claim to say truly this was the Son of God has to come in a transformed life. The evidence, the, the proof's in the pudding, if you like. The evidence is in what happens next. What we know about this centurion, um, he was coming towards the end of his career. Um, he had probably been serving the Roman army in Europe and the battles that were happening there in the Netherlands and other places, 
pushing Roman conquering forward. That wasn't a good sentence, but you know what I mean? Advancing the Pax Romana through the Roman war and conquering other nations. That's a better way to say it, isn't it? There we go. He had done so well leading the army, overseeing this, 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 these battles, this war, that he had been promoted to centurion. He had become battle-hardened, maybe battle-weary, and he had come to the end of his time being an effective soldier in the field, so he had effectively come into semi-retirement, and he'd been given this gig of overseeing the executions. It wasn't a terribly honorable job, but it paid the bills. And so towards the end of his career and towards the end of his life, he was, as a seasoned soldier who had seen everything, probably done everything, he was charged with overseeing these executions. And you hear this confession from his lips after executing tens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, this one person, Jesus, truly this man was the son of God. That's all the Bible tells us about him, but church history gives us more. Church history tells us that his name was, um, let me get this right, Longus, Longus, how do you say that? L-O-N-G-I-N-U-S. How would you say it? You're doing as well as I am with it. Okay, that's okay. So we're all on the same page. We're friends. That's okay. But church history tells us his name is Longus. His story is detailed in a, a document that dates back to the 4th century that's called the Gospel of Nicodemus. Now, it's not a biblical document. Think of it as a book from that time, a Christian book from that time. It's not part of the Bible, but it's a Christian book, a Christian scroll or parchment from that time. The Gospel of Nicodemus from the 4th century that is believed to have been taken from Hebrew writings that Nicodemus, who we read about in the Gospels, had written. It's not part of the Bible, but it's worth paying attention to. We're told in this uh, writing that Longus, he was the one who took the spear and pushed it into Jesus' side to make sure he was dead before his body was taken off. We're told, actually, that this Roman centurion, Longus, had, a, had an eye condition. He had poor eyesight, which probably makes sense later on in age but he had an eye condition that he had developed. And as he pierced the spear into the side of Jesus, as the blood and water flowed out, some of it spread out into his face and his eyes, and the blood of Jesus in that moment healed his eyesight. It's a story from this document. That from that day on, his eyesight was perfect. His eyes were perfect. We're told that his confession was genuine because after this, he went and sought out the apostles, and they were happy to baptize him into the church and into the Christian faith. And actually, years later, both in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, he was venerated as a saint and as one of their saints. Now, we, we don't do saints in the, the Protestant Church, but it's interesting that 2,000 years later, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church recognized the, this guy as a significant character and have made him a saint. Remarkable story from church history. Was this Roman centurion's confession genuine? I, I want to say yes. As I read this, as I've sat with this, 
I, I don't know anybody's heart. Only the Lord knows that. But, but I, I want to say it was. I want to say what you're seeing in this moment, surely this man was the son of God, was a moment of confession and a moment of transformation in his life. And theology and all of that stuff came later. But this was the moment that he gave his life to God. Why is this interesting? What's the so what of this? I, I think it's fascinating that as we think about evangelism, as we think about sharing our faith, as we think about telling other people about Jesus and seeing them come to faith in Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in Jesus' life and in his death and in his resurrection and the life of the early church, the story of God was really important. You had to talk about who God was and put theology around it. You had to explain to people that this was the Son of God. The story of God was really important. And the judgment of God was really important. And the love of God was really important. And the supernatural power of God was really important. And it was those things coming together that brought about the transformation in somebody's life. You think about the ministry of Jesus. You see all of those things present in his ministry, don't you? When you stand at the foot of the cross and you see even in his death, people coming to faith. You see all of those things present in his death. You look at his resurrection and the ministry of the early church. Did they talk about the story of God? Yes, of course they did. They talked about the, the, the divinity of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and the purpose of it. Did they talk about the judgment of God? Of course they did. Did they talk about the love of God? Of course they did. Did they demonstrate the power of God through praying and supernatural signs and wonders and healings and miracles? Yeah, of course they did. And it was those things coming together that brought about a transformed life. And we go forward 2,000 years to where we are today. And on most metrics, the, the church in the West is in decline. And over Holy Week, we're going to be praying in the prayer space, in the prayer room for a move of God. We're going to be praying that God will move in power, that people will see who he is, that they will give their lives to him. And for some of us, well, I want to say for most of us, we, we tend when we think about sharing our faith with other people to focus in on one of these four things. Some of us are more comfortable with the story of God. So we, we think about apologetics and theology and good answers and explaining things. We want to get those things right. Some of us fixate on the judgment of God. There was an era in Northern Ireland when all preaching came down to the judgment of God and a lot of salvations came out of fear from going to hell. And it feels like the, the, the church has moved maybe away from that. We, we shouldn't lose sight of that because that's still true. It's just one part of the story. For some people are so compelled with the love of God. If you just love people well, they'll see Jesus. And for some of you, it's, it's the power of God. We pray for, for the miraculous. We pray for healing and they'll, they'll see the transformation of God. And, and the enemy whose purpose is to kill and steal and destroy, who doesn't want people connecting with Jesus and experiencing life in all its fullness. His main weapon, well, we're told he's the father of lies. 
So he makes a church like this think, well, it's more important to get the theology right than it is to get the, the praying for miracles right. Or it's more important to talk about love than it is to talk about judgment. And we think we've got it right, but the, the rest of you have got it a bit wrong. But what you see in the life of Jesus and what you see even at the foot of the cross and what you see in the resurrection and the early story of the early, ch- story of the early church is that the story of Jesus and the judgment of God and the love of the Father and the supernatural power of God are present realities to bring about the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And if we want today to be serious about seeing God's kingdom come, if we want today to be serious about being a church that is for the transformation of this city and this island, if we want today to be people who pray that prayer and say, Jesus, where it says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And we don't pray it in the abstract, but we look at our kids and we look at our parents and we look at our colleagues in work and we look at the person who lives beside us who, who don't know Jesus or who've walked away from Jesus. And, and this is our prayer for them. And there's something about these four elements being present as we pray for a move of God. And so as we come to this table today to celebrate communion, as we stand beside this Roman centurion at the foot of the cross and gaze up at our Lord, at our Savior who died there in our place, I want to ask you, are you earthed in the story of God? Are you completely trusting in the story of God as we see it in the Gospels? Not watered down, not cherry picked out, but the story of God and the God. Are you compelled that this is truth, that this is reality? Is this the narrative for your life and the expectation for your prayers? Are you being deformed by individualism and consumerism and all the other isms that lead us away from this? Are you earthed in the story of God that says, Jesus, you are both Savior and Lord of my life? Are you being formed in the love of God? Are you coming daily to the foot of the cross and saying, God, I just can't, I can't, I can't get my head around. This is how much you love me, even on my worst day, even when I throw hungry hippo balls at my sister or do something so much worse. And you still love me because you, you, you came onto that cross and you died for me. God, help me to, to be a conduit for your love. Help me to pray the same prayer Jesus prayed. And Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Are you being formed in the love of God? Is it flowing through you into the lives of people around you? Are you being motivated by the judgment of God? And this one's not popular, but, but, but the truth is, guys, that for people who don't know Jesus, who haven't given their lives to Jesus, 
when their life comes to an end, they will stand before a judge. We all will. And if you are trusting Jesus, well, the judgment of God's already fallen on him for your sin. But if you're not trusting Jesus, then the judgment of God falls on you. And it is terrible. It is terrible. And the truth of that should have us on our knees regularly praying for the people in our lives who don't know Jesus. And finally, are we open to the power of God? We are not talking to the people around us about a God who is distant and who is impotent and we are talking about a God who can raise Jesus from the dead. We are talking about a God who can heal, who can transform, who can forgive. We are talking about a God for whom all things are possible. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to come to this table and celebrate communion. And then we're going to sing one song. And after we sing, Gary's going to invite people to come for prayer ministry and others for tea and coffee and others to collect their little booklets. This morning, as with prayer ministry, as alongside it, we're going to offer prayer for healing. The guys don't know this yet. I'm going to go and hang out with them as well and pray. If you need healing and you'd like us to pray for you, lift you up before God, we'd love to do that this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. Take a moment and pray that confession yourself. Maybe it comes easily to you and you, you've prayed it regularly. Maybe you feel far from God and actually this is, is a coming back to Jesus moment. Truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I'm sorry I've strayed. Maybe you've never prayed it, and this morning you've come into church with the same apathy as the Roman centurion, but in the course of this service, your eyes have been opened as his was. I invite you to pray truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Thank you that you love us, Lord. You loved us enough to, to die on that cross. And thank you that it's not the end of the story, that your death was not the end of the story, that as we trust in you, death is not the end of our story. We want to say we love you and we trust you. And we offer ourselves to you afresh because our heart is for the transformation of this nation and for the evangelization to see people falling in love with you, Jesus. We offer ourselves to that dream. 
Christ's name. Amen. Amen.